22, 6-16. And we can see that this is Paul's testimony. And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell unto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid. But they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise, and go into Damascus, and there shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. In the same hour I looked up upon him, and he said, The God of our fathers have chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be, for thou shalt be his witness, witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now, why tarriest thou? Arise, and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You may be seated. Several weeks ago, I preached a message here on discerning God's will for my life, part one. And this morning, I plan to continue on that subject, thinking of the question, what does God want me to do? Or more specifically, how can I know what God wants me to do? And as I said the last time, when you ask that question, you're in a good place. This was one of the first questions that Paul asked or saw after he was converted. Lord, what would the hide me to do? And it's an important question for all of us to ask throughout our Christian lives. It's a question we should ask ourselves daily. It should be our continual desire. In the first message, I used the illustration of sending electronic signals. To send an electronic signal, there needs to be both a transmitter and a receiver. The transmitter sends those signals continually, but you don't know about them unless there is a receiver that is, first of all, in working order, and secondly, it's tuned in to select the signals that it is going to receive. So the transmitter always does its part, unless you were depending on AT&T this past week. But generally speaking, the transmitter always does its part. But the receiver is the one that is receiving or not receiving. So God does not fail. He is there doing his part, transmitting messages. But as receivers, we need to be receptive and we need to be specifically tuned in to God. And in the first message I shared in this subject, I talked about being tuned in to God. 
how we can receive his signals. So I think a bit of review on that would be order, would be an order. We talked about tuning into God. First of all, we said in order to tune in with God, we simply need to spend time with him. The more time we spend with him, the better we get to know him. And if we do not spend time with him, we will not be in tune with him. Secondly, we need to tune out distractions. We need to stop and listen. There are so many signals bombarding us from all directions that are competing for our attention and want to get our attention. And there are signals we need to tune out. Sometimes there may be good signals, but we need to just take time to tune them out and turn aside as Moses did and focus on God's message. Then we talked about waiting on the Lord, something that's not easy. We don't like to wait, but in order to tune into God, we need to wait. God has many promises for those that wait. We looked at some of them. We also looked at the examples of some people who did not wait on God's timing, such as Moses and Abraham and, and um, desiring a son. And then fourthly, we talked about surrendering my will. We talked about a, an electronic receiver does not fabricate its own messages. It simply receives what the transmitter sends. And in the same way, we need to be surrendered to receive whatever God sends our way. And sometimes God waits until we are surrendered. Unconditional surrender is what he is looking for. And it's a vital step in determining his will. So the first step is to be in tune with God. And the more I'm in tune with God, the easier it will be to discern what he is speaking into my life. I'd like to look now, moving into the next section, why does it matter? This thing of the will of God and discerning the will of God, is it really that important? Why does it matter? I'd like to um, present to you a statement, and I'm going to give this to you as a statement, a true or false statement. Inside the will of God, there is no failure. Outside the will of God, there is no success. Is that true or false? Okay. You can each think about that. Come up with your own answer in your own mind. And I'm su supposing that there's more than just one person here that disagrees with that statement. You look at that and say, well, now that just can't be true. Perhaps there are some here who would hesitantly agree with it, or at least concede, well, maybe it's true, but I'm not really convinced. And probably some would say, that's not a good question, it doesn't have a good answer. It doesn't have a simple true or false answer. And I would give some space for that response as well. And probably by now, most of you are thinking, so what is your answer? Supposing that if I put the question there, I have an answer to it. Well, I am not going to insist that you need to agree that this is a true statement. However, I would like to present some support for the truth of the statement. And ultimately, I'll let the decision up to you. 
So what is the support for the truth of this statement? Inside the will of God, there is no failure. Outside the will of God, there is no success. So we are looking at life from a spiritual perspective. There are many perspectives from which you can look at life. So looking at life from a spiritual perspective, my entire life, every moment of my life, points ahead to one moment. And that is the moment when I stand before God and hear his analysis of my life, his summary of my life. And that moment is the defining moment of success or failure when God gives his analysis of my life. So it doesn't matter what I experienced in life. If I stand before God and I'm found wanting, I'm a failure. On the other hand, if all my life I struggled in poverty, things that I attempted just did not work out, people consider me a failure, and yet God says to me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. In that case, my life was a success. You see, my life will be defined by that one moment. So just as a clarification, you can live outside the will of God and still experience accomplishments and pleasures, and you can succeed in things that you attempt to do. But if God says to you, depart from me, I never knew you, how can you consider your life anything but a failure? Or you may experience hurts, difficulties, disappointments in life, sufferings, trials. But if at the end of your life you hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, your life has been a success. Can we conclude anything else? Our life points to that one moment. Job was considered by his so-called friends to be a miserable failure. And yet he was accepted by God. And in the end, it was clear that his life was a success. On the other hand, there's King Belshazzar in the book of Daniel. And he appeared to be the epitome of success. He was a ruler of a great empire. He was celebrating his achievements with a great feast. He gathered a thousand of his lords together, along with a harem of women. They were drinking wine, celebrating, having a wild time. But suddenly he came face to face with the reality of life. And the words were written on the wall for everyone to see. You are weighed in the balances and found wanting. His life was a failure. Before the night had passed, he was a dead man in all his gold, all his silver, all his wine, all his women, all his kingdom meant absolutely nothing to him. It did not contribute one iota to his success. And I could name men that are alive today, men that are recognized by nearly everyone in our country, men whose names we know, 
because of their financial accomplishments. Some of the richest men around, you know who they are. Are these men, are these men successful? Are they a success? It's not determined by their bottom line, by their bank accounts. If they have no positive impact for eternity, how can we consider their lives a success? You see, it's a bit like running a race. You can run a race, and you can be in the lead for 95% of that race. But if five meters before the finish line, you stumble and fall and never complete that race. The fact that you were ahead 95% of the time means nothing. You failed. You did not complete the race. God has a plan for your life. And your success is determined by the degree to which you find and fulfill that plan. And that's why it matters. Why does the will of God matter? Because I believe our success is determined by the degree to which we find and fulfill God's will for our lives. So we come back to this statement. Inside the will of God, there is no failure. Outside the will of God, there is no success. Hopefully those thoughts give a little bit of clarity to that statement. But maybe it's still hard for you to come up with a definitive true or false. So I will summarize my conclusion with a different statement, which is this. True success is found only within the will of God. That is the measure of true success. It's found only within the will of God. Outside the will of God, you may be successful in certain goals, but at the end of the day, it is not true success. Moving on, why does it matter? I believe that finding and doing God's will is the most important thing in my life. And I'm going to share a number of verses that refer to God's will or to God's plan and purpose for our lives. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. We are stewards of the life that God gave to us. God gave us life. And we are stewards of that life. Faithfulness to his will and purpose is not a suggestion. It's a requirement. It is required in students that we are faithful to God's purpose. It is his expectation. Two verses from Proverbs, one from chapter four and one from chapter two. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. Seek for her as silver and search for her as hidden treasure. You see, the will of God may not be readily observed or found by the casual observer. It may require concerted effort, prayer, Seeking counsel, waiting on God, surrender, and more. We need to seek for it as a hidden treasure. It is the principal thing. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 tells us that life and godliness is attained through the knowledge of God, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature. We partake of the nature of God 
by understanding the will of God through the knowledge of God and his will. Two more verses, Ephesians 5, 17. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And again, this is not given as a suggestion. This is a directive given in scripture. And I don't believe that God would tell us to do something that is not possible. Some people might say, well, how can you know the will of God? It's not possible to know what God wants for my life. God would not tell us to do something that's not possible. Be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Romans 12, verse 2. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'd also like to read that in the ESV, where it says, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Is that not what you want for your life? That which is good and acceptable and perfect? Are you willing to settle for something less than that? Or will you go for the best? Let's move on to another question. Does God present his will to us family style or buffet style? In other words, does he set a platter in front of us and say, here it is? This is what you do. Or does he lead us up to a buffet? Say, here are the choices. Here are the options. Choose what you want. Well, here again, I suppose there are various options on that. I know there are strong advocates for the buffet idea. For example, they might say, well, I know that God wants me to marry a Christian, but other than that, it doesn't matter. It's my choice. There are dozens of people I could marry, and I'm free to choose whoever I want within the parameters that God sets. The advocates for the platter style may say, well, God created a custom-designed wife for Adam, and I think he is going to do the same for me as well. I will wait for the one person God chooses and provides for me. So which of these ideas is correct? So we can also ask, is it God's will for a certain person in our church to serve as a pastor, another certain person to serve somewhere in a foreign mission, and another certain person to be a carpenter or woodworker, another certain person to be a teacher, and another certain person to be a programmer? Or is it totally up to me what I do? I can do whatever I wish. Well, I think to answer this question, we need to decipher between God's general will and God's specific will. God has a general will that applies to all men. In Romans chapter 2, Paul writing to the Jews, he said, You are called a Jew, and you rest in the law, and you make your boast in God that you know his will because you're instructed out of the law. So Paul was saying to the Jews, you read the law, you say you know God's will. 
That's God's general will. God's general will is revealed in the law. It generally applies to all men. We can find God's general will revealed to us through the Ten Commandments, uh, most of the New Testament, nearly any Sunday morning that you come here and listen to a sermon, you will hear God's general will presented, principles that apply to all men of all time. Just one example that talks about God's will, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. That's a general principle. It applies to all people, God's will for all people. So this general will, we could refer to as the buffet style. For an example, God teaches us that we should dress modestly. So in the buffet, you might have a green outfit, a blue outfit, or brown outfit, and it's your choice what you may wear. On the other hand, a bright neon color or a blaze orange suit on a Sunday morning may not be an option because that would not be very modest. So as long as we stay within God's parameters, there are options that we can choose from. God's general will is that we exercise wise stewardship. You can drive a Dodge or a Mazda or a Subaru. There may be certain models that you say are not wise, but you have the options. On the other hand, an expensive luxury vehicle or a powerful sports car may not be among the options for a follower of Jesus. So God has a general will that applies to all people. God also has a specific will that applies to individuals, a certain person at a certain time. We read the history of the Old Testament. God led the children of Israel through the Red Sea. Does that mean that we all need to walk through the Red Sea? No, that was a specific leading for specific people at a specific time. God told the children of Israel to walk around Jericho seven days in a row. That was a specific will for a specific person at a specific time. God told the church in Antioch, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent by the Holy Ghost, departed. You see, this was God's specific will for specific people at a specific time. Later, Paul was considering preaching in Asia. But the Bible clearly says God stopped him. He didn't have his freedom in, in the spirit, from the spirit to go. So then he wanted to go into Bithynia. But again, God stopped him. So Paul was there wondering, well, where should I go? What does God want me to do? And then during that time, he received this clear call, this vision from a man in Macedonia. Come over into Macedonia and help us. And it says, so they went, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them. So here again, this was God's specific will for a specific person at a specific time. Now you might ask, does the same thing happen today? Now that was in the book of Acts. We read lots of things in the book of Acts. Does God still lead people in specific ways today? 
Can this apply to the job that I take, to the house that I live in, to the person that I marry, to the car that I buy? Or does God not lead us specifically? Personally, I believe God does lead us specifically today. I have experienced it too often and too obviously to deny it in some ways that were very, very clear. And some of those stories to me are very interesting. Um, I don't think I will share a lot of those details with you because I don't want to glamorize them or sentimentalize them because God may lead you in a different way. He doesn't lead us all in the same way. I guess if you want to hear them, you can ask me later. So perhaps this specific will could be compared to the platter style where God presents to you something specific that he has chosen and selected for you. There are two different Greek words that are used in the New Testament, two different Greek words that are, or terms that are both translated word in the King James Version of the New Testament. The one is logos and the other is rima. The word logos in the Greek New Testament is found over 300 times and this has to do with a general word, kind of an all-inclusive word, an overriding word. It would be reflective of God's general will for all people. But then there, the other word, the other term that is translated word is rima, and that's used only 70 times because it's a lot more specific. And this term has to do with a specific word for God that applies to a specific situation. God can speak into our lives in specific ways. And many people refer to these two words, logos and rima, as comparing to God's general will and God's specific will for our lives. So that leads us up to the third part of this subject of discerning God's will for my life. So we talked about why does it matter? Previously, we talked about tuning into God. Now I'd like to look a little bit at these, uh, receiving the signals, understanding and interpreting God's message to me. God sends us signals when I receive them, how do I, how do I receive them? And how do I interpret them? The first way is simply to begin by following God's general will. If I want to know God's specific will for my life, I need to begin by following his general will for my life. And if I'm not following God's general will, I can't expect him to reveal to me his specific will. If we do not obey what we already know, why would God reveal more to us? God reveals his will to us progressively, step by step. He generally doesn't lay out our lives 20 years down the road. We don't know what we're going to be doing 20 years from now. We don't know what God may ask us to do 20 years from now. What we need to do is obey what God is asking us to do today. And as we follow that step by step, 
he continues to reveal his will to us. The Bible says in Psalms, in the book of Psalms, that thy word, God's word, is a lamp to my feet. It doesn't say it's a searchlight that can shine far off into the future. It's a lamp for my feet, lighting my path a step or two at a time. If you would be here for an evening service and you go home after dark, you can't go out, sit in your vehicle, and turn on the headlights and wait till those headlights shine all the way to Gordonville or Narvon or Whitehorse or wherever you may live. You can't say, well, I'm going to sit here until the path illuminates the whole way home so I know where I'm going. The path is ahead of you. And as you go, the, path the light continues to illuminate your path. That's how we need to follow God. And Saul is an example of that. Two weeks ago, or a few weeks ago in the sermon, we uh, read the account of his conversion in Acts 9. Today, Joseph read the account given in Acts 22, where Paul was relating this information to other people. And so I believe it's a good example of following God's will step by step. When he met the Lord on the road to Damascus, he had this burning question on his heart. Lord, what would you have me to do? Did you ever think about it, that at that moment, God did not lay out the details of the rest of his life? At that moment, God did not say to him, I want you to go preach the word in Antioch and Philippi and Ephesus and in Galatia and in Macedonia and in all those other places. He just gave him one step. He said, go into Damascus. That's all he told him, go to Damascus. So what did Paul do? Why Damascus? What do you want me to do there? No, he obeyed what he knew. He went into Damascus. When he got to, to Damascus, he was told to be baptized. So Paul was baptized. Later, he was told that he would be sent to the Gentiles. And this is a pattern that continued throughout Paul's life, step by step. And as he followed, God continued to reveal the next step. And I believe that one of the key ways to determine God's will from a life is simply by obeying what we know, what he tells us to do. We pray that he would show us his will, and we wait for him to answer that prayer. And it's very possible that while we wait for God to answer our prayer, he's waiting for us to obey what he has already showed to us. And it's possible that our lack of obedience hinders God from revealing more to us. Psalm 66, verse 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I'm disobeying God, God's not going to hear and answer my prayer to show him more down the road. Only when you respond to what you know will you be ready for further direction. I think this is a vital concept that we really need to remember. One of the best ways to learn what God wants you to do tomorrow is to do what you know he wants you to do today. And as you do that, God will continue to reveal his will to you.
Receiving the signals, first of all, begin by following God's general will. Secondly, review God's past leading. Look back at how God led you in the past. This can be a, a tremendous asset in helping to discern where God is leading you today. My mind went to an illustration here that I'll try to, um, try to take you along through this thought pattern a little bit. Imagine you're walking through some huge museum or some big building or some place that's a, a total maze, you've never been in it before, a strange area, and you get to a point where you wonder where you are. And you come to this big sign that says, you are here. That's all. Nothing else. You are here. Is that very helpful? It gives you no perspective. It gives you no orientation. You don't even know which way you're turned by that signal. And that's how some people feel about life. It's like, well, here I am, but now what? Where do I go from here? No orientation. No sense of direction. Or perhaps in this maze, you are here, you have an idea where you want to end up. You know where you want to go, but you still have no idea how to get there because you don't have any orientation. You know where you are, but you don't know which way you're turned. Now to get to where I want to be, do I turn right or left or go back or move forward? So you're still confused. But if there would be more details on that map showing you more aspects where you could see where you've been and where you've come and where you've journeyed, you could see I was here, then I was here, then I was here, and now I'm here. And I want to end up there so I know how I need to go to get to that point. You see, looking back at God's leading in your past is a tremendous way to help you determine where you're headed. Oh, so I need to go this way. Or along with that, maybe in this museum, or in this case, your life, you have various options. And you're considering these options. You know, here's an option, here's an option. What does God want me to do of all these options? And as you look back in your life, and you can see, so I was here. God led me here. God led me here. God led me here. Oh, I see the trajectory that he's leading me. Now I'm beginning to see where he was leading me. All along, I'm beginning to see what he was preparing me for. As you look back at how God led you in the past, it gives you a sense of direction. And it gives you a, a sense of purpose of where God may be taking you in the future. And again, I think we see a, an example of this looking back in the life of Paul. How many times in the book of Acts... Can we read about Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus? It's found in Acts 9. You know it's found in Acts 22. 
Did you know it's actually found three times in the book of Acts? You can find it again in Acts 26. Why is that same account given three times? Well, I think there's a reason for that. I think there may be several reasons for that. Paul was obviously sharing his testimony with other people. He wanted them to understand, but I think there may be more than that. Paul found himself in some pretty tight spots. For example, in Acts 22, he had just returned to Jerusalem after completing several missionary journeys. He had taken the gospel to countless Gentiles, and the Jews were not happy with what he was doing. They started telling rumors about him. They stirred up all the people, it says. The entire city was against him. They dragged him out of the city. They started beating him, and they did not intend to stop until he was a dead man. But at that point, the captain of the band came along with some soldiers, and they rescued Paul. They took him to the castle. They actually had to carry Paul between them to protect him from the angry mob. So picture yourself in Paul's situation. The entire city against you, soldiers carrying you off, this huge uproar, and you begin to wonder, how in the world did I get myself into such a predicament? I could be making tents, and I wouldn't be in this situation. I, if I would have just settled for making tents, my life would be so much easier. Why in the world am I in this place where I am? And I think at that moment, Paul shared his testimony, but I have a feeling he was sharing it for his own good. And he was recounting, you know, I am where I am at this moment because this is where God led me. And he began telling them, God called me in a dramatic way that I could not deny. God called me to be a minister to the Gentiles, and I am where I am today because of God's call and purpose for my life. And it gave him a sense of direction for the future. We could turn ahead a few chapters to Acts 26. This time Paul was standing before King Agrippa. And when we read the testimonies of Paul, the stories of Paul, we tend to have this feeling, at least I do, oh, Paul was a bold man. He didn't fear anyone. He just spoke boldly. He preached the gospel. But you know what? Paul was human too. And sometimes if you stand before even a local authority, you might be intimidated about what you have to say. Paul was standing before the king. Do you think he was shaking in his boots? You think he was asking himself again, how do I get myself in such predicaments? So again, he reminded himself, I am here because this is where God led me. He recounted God's story. And he summed it up with the words in his testimony to King Agrippa. He says, wherefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. God led me from here to here to here. And he still has a route 
for my life. I have been obedient up until this point. Why should I change now? What a beautiful testimony. I have not been disobedient. You see, it's not so much where you are at this moment that counts as where you're headed. If you consider only where you are now, you could be headed in any direction imaginable. But if you consider where you are in light of where you've been, it helps you to see where you're going and the direction that God has for you. So we're talking about reviewing God's past leading in our lives to help us determine where he's leading us in the future. And I believe God wants us to learn from the examples of each other as believers. He gives us many examples in the Bible. I'm going to share with you a, another story, true story, of an example of, of a man who went back to see where God was leading him. And I'm going to call this man John. As a young man, John committed his life to God. And John had a good friend, and these two young men would spend a lot of time together, and often they would go out into the woods, out into the forest, and just spend time alone, praying together, encouraging each other, talking about what they felt that God may be calling them to do in life. And John's friend felt a distinct call to be involved in mission work. And he kept telling John, John, I think you ought to join me, go into mission. John told him, no, God, I feel God has called me to serve him in this area, to serve his people in this area. And that is what I'm going to do, serve the people of my community. And John responded to that call and gave his life to God's work in significant ways. But as years went by, there was a group of men that were watching John, perhaps a bit like the group of princes in the book of Daniel. And they started looking for ways to find fault in John's life, looking for ways to condemn him. And they watched him for a long time. And they started making lists, making long lists of perceived offenses in which this man was involved. A lot of imagined things, a long list. Finally, the day came in which these men were prepared to present their case. And they called a meeting together, called John to the meeting. I was also asked to attend that meeting. And in that meeting, they laid out charge after charge, after charge, page after page. Long into the night, finally about midnight, they dismissed John. And it was sometime later when I left the meeting, driving through the darkness in tears at the pain that I just saw happening. And I felt I needed to go and encourage John. So I drove to his house, but his vehicle wasn't there. I drove to 
his office. His vehicle wasn't there. So I called him. I said, John, where are you? He said, I'm outside of town at the edge of the forest in a remote place. He told me where it was. I said, should I come? He said, can you please? So I went, I found him all alone in a remote spot in the middle of the night, standing by his vehicle, his shoulders heaving with sobs. And I don't think I'll ever forget his words. He said, I just had to come back to the spot where God first called me, just to see if he still has any work left for me to do. You see, he was at a difficult moment in his life. And the future was turmoil. It was confusing for him. But he had to look back in his life and see where God had led him. Do you have those sacred spots in your life? Those places where you met God? Those places where God led you, go back to those places. Remember God's leading. A place where God called you. A place where God spoke to you. God asks us to remember his leading. Deuteronomy 8.2, Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people were told to set up memorials, set up pillars, set up stones, so that you can remember, God led me here and here and here, and his path for my life continues into the future. I encourage you to keep a journal, remember, record those significant moments in your life so you can continue to go back. It may be healthy for you to go with your spouse to the location where your engagement took place. Just to remember, God's leading in your life. This is a place where I made a commitment. It would not be inappropriate for you sometime to come and stand probably about right here where you committed your lives to each other. This is a place of God's leading and commitment in my life. Set up memorials. Have those holy places that you can return to. There's a quote that I've read at some point. All that I have seen teaches me to trust God for all that I have not seen. Have you seen God's leading in your life? Look back and allow that to be an encouragement for where he is leading you in the future. Well, I've only covered two ways in which we can receive signals from God. There are more, but I think this is enough for one morning. We need to begin by following God's general will. Obey what he is asking us to do today so we can see what he wants us to do tomorrow. And review his leading in our lives and see where he is leading us. So how badly do
Do you want to know God's will for your life? Do you care? Is it important to you? And whose will do you think is better, his or yours? I'll close with two more statements. One is a quote from A.W. Tozer, who said, Outside the will of God, there is nothing I want. Inside the will of God, there is nothing I fear. That may be a difficult statement. We have our fears. And I'm the first to confess that when God leads me, he continually leads me out of my comfort zone. And I have fears. But generally, those fears are because of my lack, not because of God's lack. God will provide. Psalm 32, verse 8. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. This is God's promise. I think God has a specific purpose for you. He has a reason for you to be here. And as you seek that purpose and follow him and see where he has led you up to this point, allow him to continue to guide you with his eye. I invite you to kneel with us for prayer. Lord, I thank you this morning for your individualized and personal interest in each one of our lives. The fact that you created the entire universe does not mean that you're not interested in individuals and you care about each one of us. Lord, I just pray that we could somehow develop the, um, at least a degree of the interest in our own future that you have and that we commit it to you because we know that your will and your ways are so much higher than our own. Lead us and guide us. May we follow your will. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.